Hi, I'm Alex. I'm Amy. And this is Small Town Not Small Minds. Hey, Alex, what's up? We had just like this awesome small town thing and that I love to talk about. It happens every year, so I'm not like, I don't know why I'm pretending like it happened for the first time ever. But all around Christmas time, Stetler has a lot of fun events that gets the community out there. And my favorite one is when they light up the Christmas tree. Oh, it's just so fun because we all stand out there and we count down for the first lighting of the tree. And then all the shops are open for shopping. And there's all these like special things going on. Like um, there'll be fire pits outside on like on Main Street. There'll be like some fire pits you can just like stop by and visit. And I just love it because, well, number one, it reminds me so much of Gilmore Girls, which have, <laughs> did you watch Gilmore Girls? Parts of it, I think I was like too dumb to catch on to all the jokes. Like they would fly over my head. But as an adult, I've watched probably as much, if not more. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And it's just like, you know how Gilmore Girls is just like, number one, I'd say like such a cozy show. And then they just like have all these little festivals and like, it's just like sweet and quaint. And I just find like the lighting of the tree to be very much like that. I just really enjoy like running into people I know and getting out in Stetler and seeing it so busy and having like the streets blocked off so we can just walk wherever. Like, I don't know. It's just one of my favorite nights and it's just brings like all of the community together. Do like, I always just grew up thinking that all small towns do this because growing up in Pinoca, same thing was like, moonlight madness and the shops were open till midnight which was like mm. it w was is that true in settlers as well it's specifically called moonlight madness also yeah um no in Stetler also so i'm like yeah i'm sure it was called that in Pinoca also yes yeah so that's anyway i mean i'm not out here pretending that this is the only town that's done it or anything like that that's not what i'm saying i'm just saying it was just really nice to be back in the place yeah. that i feel like is home and seeing everyone just out and about yeah that's so awesome it's just very like gets you in the spirit the holiday spirit and it really like mm. kickstarts the whole december season so for sure love that what's up with you well, I had to relocate within my building due to a like development of retail space below my unit. So now I'm in a new tower and 10 floors up. And let me tell you, the sunrises high up in the sky are unreal. It is so cool to watch like the whole horizon just like glow orange and kind of rise. So this is my first time ever living in a high rise. And I don't know that it was like fair because on floor two, it was just street, right? So now I get to see both the mountains and the sunrise and it's just like, I'm loving it. I absolutely I love think it. I speak for all of our listeners when I say, thank goodness you're still in the same building because <laughs> we would be missing that golf simulator. We would be missing the pool. We would miss too much. So thank goodness you just moved up in floors and not to a different building. Right. Totally. So whenever you come to visit, you can get all the perks of my building. 
And you have a balcony now. Yes. Yeah, for sure. I honestly, the first like two weeks of living here, I would, even though it's like winter, I would open the balcony and just stand out there and just be like, ah, fresh air. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So, (laughs) (laughs) yeah. So that's what's up. So this episode, as we said, Amy and I are just like following that lifelong learner. And um, every episode, we each want to bring a topic that um, excites us, interests us, or that's new to us, and we'll just dissect it. So Amy is bringing the topic of gift giving and kind of talking about the history of that and love languages and how that all intertwines. And I came across this term called gender flight. And so I will be digging into some misogyny. So stay (laughs) tuned for gifts and feminism. And that's What's What's Up. Well, Ames, do you want to take it away? Gift giving? Yeah, well, I know December is a huge season of gift giving and so on. And I know like I've had lots of time to think and reflect on on what that is, but I was so curious because gift giving doesn't really resonate with me personally. So when I was digging up, I found an author, Stephen Nisbaum, of a book called The Battle for Christmas. And in it, he actually describes the history behind it through actually being a pagan holiday that was originally celebrated in a way for the people of lower social status to go around and go door to door and demand handouts to people of higher social status. And I love that idea. <laughs> like, Are you kidding? Sort of okay. like trick-or-treating? Like, yeah, kind of, kind of, like, but of like a social class. So they would right. like, the verb is actually wassail. They would wassail, which is like, they would kind of be drunk and kind of rowdy. And it was typically men of the family and go door to door to people they knew of higher status. And like, they would be provide them with like handouts. And that idea of like gift giving is still very present within our Christian holiday of Christmas of giving back to those in need and giving, you know, to charities and food banks and clothing drives. And so I love that idea. But sometimes I find when I think about modern gift giving it doesn't really resonate for me when you say that do you mean like the consumerism part like what is not resonating yeah like I just think I know that in this research too it's like obviously it's saying like like research at the National Institute of Health is saying like giving and receiving gifts is actually like securing more of a bond like amongst people but I feel like for me the way I like to give gifts is more through like activities and experiences with people rather than like, here's an actual said item. That's not to say I don't give gifts. Yeah, it it's a little incongruent for me because I feel like you give lots of little gifts and you're very thoughtful that way. So like just what you're saying is a little incongruous for me. Yeah, I feel like okay. you're yeah, you're always like it, and it and it doesn't need to be like I've bought you this huge thing, but I feel like you're you give little gifts to lots of people lots of the time. You bring a coffee, like when we both worked in Stetler, you drop stuff off at my desk, like yeah, but that stuff is more like I don't know, maybe I'm more practical when it comes to gift giving. Even if I try to receive gifts and I know like I'm getting gifts for my birthday or like upcoming holidays, I'm mm-hmm. like I, I don't want anyone to 
for say like waste their money. So I always am like, Hey, like I would love to just have dinner with you or, you know, something that's like practical and makes sense, but also gives me an opportunity to spend like quality time with the person. I think And that's where the love languages come in. (laughs) Fair. Like, I would argue a little bit like that. So gift giving, number one, it accesses a reward center in our brain. So giving a gift makes us feel good, even if you're not receiving a, a gift back in return. So regardless if it's practical, if it's like like too expensive and you're like, oh, I didn't need to receive a gift that big or or whatever, the act of giving a gift literally like gives us dopamine. So there was this really cool study that was done. Um, They split the group in half and they gave them $100 and they told the one half, spend this $100 on yourself. And they told the other half, spend this $100 on someone else. And when they registered, I don't know how they did it, but when they like measured um, their levels of happiness afterwards, the group of people that spent $100 on someone else registered way higher levels of happiness than the people who bought themselves a gift. I just think it's so interesting because I do love to treat myself and I do think it makes me feel good. But it's just, just interesting to see like the research behind it where like giving a gift, it doesn't like, you know, sometimes you receive a gift and you're like, oh, that not something I love but sometimes gift giving is not about the gift itself it's about the act Mm -hmm. okay so what you were saying just before if like you get a bad gift too I was reading Mm -hmm. that this the from this other data here it's saying that this doctor had said that it's a very vulnerable experience for you because gift giving is like an expression of your emotion and it's really hard for others to accept gifts especially if they're avoidant attachment styles or have a fear of intimacy so actually i was like is this actually deeply embedded and rooted in my own self and the history of me so that was like kind of interesting because i do see it as a very vulnerable thing and i know when it comes to someone i really love i sometimes overthink mm-hmm. the gift especially if it's like a formal or like like supposed to be a very meaningful gift i like get a little yes. bit anxious about this idea of it whereas like those small things like bringing someone a coffee or leaving a nice note or when i see something that i like or reminds me of someone like that's so easy mm-hmm. for me to do the when it comes to like a formality of like having okay. to give someone gifts i like i kind of fall well, like- apart The societal pressure around it, I understand, right? And I feel like we've spoke about this before and you prefer to give gifts and do that outside of like the big moments. That's probably because of like, because we do place a lot of pressure on those things on anniversaries, on Christmas and and those kind of things. Um, Whereas like, if we just remember like the act of giving a gift is more important than the gift itself, maybe we could alleviate some of that pressure in the first place. Yeah, totally. Want to talk about love languages? Yeah, I kind of did. I said it a little earlier, and I think so I we think didn't it, dig into it. I didn't. I got in. opinions on the love languages, so I was like, mm, we haven't touched it enough. <laughs> I know, I know, but I know that having done and read that book, I know that that actually scores lower for me. And mm-hmm. again, I'm not like I don't not do that. I don't not give gifts or receive gifts and I'm like disgusted by it in any capacity mm-hmm. I still like it I'm just saying it's it for me I know it actually doesn't weigh heavy for sure right so and so like the love languages like that where you're saying like oh I scored low on that same like I score low on physical touch on love languages and I feel like every time I do it like it feels 
honestly, I'm going to say it like doing like a BuzzFeed quiz a little bit where it's like, like the questions, like it leads you exactly to the answers, you know, like when it's like, what Hogwarts house are you? It's like, are you the brave one? Are you the mean one? It like, same with the love languages one. It's like, do you want a hug? Or do you want someone to say you're beautiful? And it like, I don't know. I didn't like love both. it. And then all at once. <laughs> when I looked into it more, I was like, it started to make sense because Gary Chapman is the person who like first started love languages. And I thought incorrectly that this was like, like psychological or psychologists like body of study. Mm-hmm. And um, it's actually not an evidence-based practice or anything like that Theory? so there's no like well yeah like there was no clinical research done at the time when gary chapman brought it it was 1992 i believe and so he like hey is that not the year you were born i was born in 93 okay but, yeah i wanted <laughs> the to be year older than you the book yeah yeah exactly i was a year old when it came out no whatever reverse yes <laughs> <laughs> anyway since 92 there have been some like research into it just because people really like grabbed onto it but I just I just found it interesting because I feel like it's a little bit marketed as if it is this like really big like body of of thought and school of thought or like research based but it's not and then it was interesting that like once research has been done couples that their love languages like match um show no more satisfaction than the couples who have like opposite love languages so there's hope out there for people who don't match up on their little love language quiz. Totally. And I like feel as though that science didn't really, or not pseudoscience, like you're exactly. saying. Exactly. Mm-hmm. I feel as though that kind of, kind of just like flared up in like 2015. It was like the it thing. Like everyone yeah. was reading it. Everyone had the book. I think that's how I even got the book. I think someone gifted me the book being like, you should read this. Like having done our Enneagrams from a previous episode, mm-hmm. like that was far more detailed about Absolutely. where you fall. And so I I can totally understand that, what you're saying. Um, like, however, at the end of the day, it's like, it's a device you can use to like share your communication of like how you receive affection or or give affection. And it's just like a tool that you can use. And, and it has a lot of language there that you can say like, hey, I need a, a lot more like mm-hmm. words of affirmation to, to feel good. Mm-hmm. Um, So don't knock it. But I, I will say I'm getting a little tired of just like being inundated with love languages constantly. I'm a little I'm a little over it. That's uh, my yeah. personal opinion. We're also pseudoscience, my personal opinion. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I was going to say. But yeah, I'm a little bit like, mm, okay, let's move yeah. on to the next. But again, I think like, good point, Alex, is just that that reflective piece is so helpful because like all of those elements, all those love languages, I don't even know if we could name all five love languages. Mm-hmm. We could. Physical touch, acts of service, quality time. Gifts. Words of affirmation and gift giving. Yeah, so I think like, all of those are definitely needed in a well-rounded partnership, really, oh, like over the course of time. But you're going to cycle through different things and mm-hmm. be able to offer them at different points. So, yeah. My last thing about gift giving I just wanted to share was your thoughts and feelings behind gift cards. Mm-hmm. Obviously, uh, when I was looking this up, this ranks almost like it is the most popular gift to give at 48%. This data was from 2020. And that kind of aligns because we were all online anyways. Mm-hmm. But it was for according to Blackhawk Network, gift cards actually still remain the most popular gift to give. And so I just wanted to hear your thoughts and ideas around this. 
It's so funny. So like, number one, I do not use my gift cards. Like, I feel like I have this mentality where I'm like, I'm going to save it for the next time. And then I'll save it for the next time. And I'll save it for the next time. I just this year used a gift card that I got from my first student in 2015. I've I've kept 2015? that. Yeah, I've kept that gift card for that long. Wow. Um, I don't know. I think gift cards. I'm always it, scared they're going to expire. Actually, and I, this, I don't have all the factual information on this. I only remember parts of it, but gift cards used to expire. But then West Edmonton Mall was actually a really big part of the reason gift cards don't expire anymore because they had a lot of unsatisfied customers that would come in their gift cards would expire and so West Edmonton Mall was like a big piece of change for making gift cards on like a national level or maybe their whole shopping center not yeah but like West Edmonton I don't look into this people okay West Edmonton Mall was a big part of the change make to make sure that gift cards no longer expire Okay, interesting. So, half fact for you, because I don't remember the whole thing. <laughs> A half fact. I wonder if gift cards are so popular because of what we're talking about, where it's like yeah. there is a lot of pressure to give the right gift. And a gift card, at least you're like, well, then you can get yourself the right gift. Well, you can be mad with you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> exactly. I think like, okay, I just had to buy prizes for a staff gift exchange. And I like, I was a bit like, frazzled and I ended up settling on gift cards because I was like, December is such a busy month. How could I help teachers more? I kept it simple. And so it is, I find it's an impersonal gift, but I also don't hate myself getting gift cards because when I don't know who's also getting the gift, it's a safe thing that I'm like, well, it's basically money. (laughs) Fair. I like, I don't know in my family, we've kind of always had like a no gift card rule. Yeah, it's not my favorite gift to give or receive, but I think it's different when you know personally that person. That said, if any of our listeners like want to send us gift cards, we love that. (laughs) Happily accept or just gifts, period. Yeah, we love it. We love gifts. (laughs) Yeah, I just I think to summarize all of this, I was really fascinated when I learned the history of gift giving. I thought that was Mm -hmm. like so beautiful because whenever I think about Christmas or like the winter holiday itself, I do actually always think about giving back more than anything. And so like, how can I give back? How can I give forward to other people? It's such a gift giving time. And mm-hmm. I thought that was really neat that throughout all this time, because this actually dates way far back. I wish I would have wrote down the date. I did not, but just like before it was commercialized and Christianized, it was a celebration that people did in hopes of receiving for those in need. So I was like, that part, we can keep everyone. (laughs) I think I'm already a gift to this world. So what more can I do? (laughs) That's some Gemini energy there, actually. (laughs) (laughs) Alex, you brought to the table a topic called gender flight. Yes, I recently heard this word. And I don't know if it's like, regularly accepted as like a word but the phenomenon exists so Mm -hmm. gender flight is based off of this concept called white flight which for example like in integration in kind of the 60s as black people moved into white neighborhoods white people left those neighborhoods thus the term white flight gender flight kind of the same where positions or places where men tend to be dominating the spaces as women start entering them men start to leave 
less gender flight. So I'm going to bring you a couple examples. So um, the Boston Orchestra was one where, or the Boston Symphony, same thing, right? Sure. I, um, <laughs> I don't know. It was majority men that were the musicians, like in the high 90% were men. And this was in the 50s even. And they were like, let's check our bias. Let's have blind auditions. And so they did have blind auditions. And when they had that, the musicians were 50-50, men and women. Interesting. I know, right? So what they found from that, though, this was the part that I was like, okay, blind auditions, that's great. Let's have some equality. Then what happened was the Boston Symphony started to see, be seen as less prestigious. Men started to leave in general. And with that came a pay decrease to the musicians in the Boston Symphony. That's just unfair. Unfair and unbelievable. And yeah. you might say, Alex, that's an example from the 50s. We must be much better than this nowadays. Yeah. It's not like that nowadays, is it, Alex? You know what? I think we can say we've come a long way, but I'm not here to talk about all those good times. I'm here to talk about a 2017 study in the American Sociological Review. They took bank loan managers and they did this study where if a woman was a manager of a loan, it was business loans specifically, the people paying the loan were more likely to miss payments or not pay on time. And if those same people were then moved to a male business loan manager, they were meeting their payments on time and not missing any of their payments. So that doesn't have to do with gender flight, I guess, as much. This I just looked into this because this was, I was looking at how like some jobs are perceived as quote male jobs or female jobs. Yeah. And it was just saying how like that bias still exists where like they thought like a woman managing their loan maybe wasn't going to be as hard on them so they could like miss their loans a little bit more than when a male was their loan manager. They were like, I got to make my payments on time. Yeah, that's like so disrespectful, Absolutely right? Like it is. it's just saying like, oh, I'm just going to not do it for someone else. But speaking of like your 1950s in terms of like similar, but similar, I guess. It's still mm -hmm. like considering gender flight, but computer science historically started with women and it was majority women. And as we've seen this industry grow into tech and IT, it's been massively dominated by males mm -hmm. and very affluent, like profitable. Absolutely. And so we like to the naked eye, we could look at this and be like, okay, this is like reverse gender flight um, where like women were in tech. But when I, I saw this kind of same, maybe the, even the same article, when I looked into this, once again, it was like fascinatingly depressing because when computers first started coming around, it was like very like secretarial work, you know, like typing and that was tended to be like a woman's job. Then as tech started to advance a lot more, like kind of in the 80s, tech was starting to see like it was like, oh, we need some, like people that are like highly intelligent and, and like really in this field of like science and tech. And so that's when it became, quote, a male's job. And now we see it hard for women to kind of break into technology now because it's a male dominated field. Interestingly, started with women, though. Yeah, which is wild. I know for me, like when I hear this topic, I can't help but first check my own like unconscious bias. I realize I'm like, oh, wow, like I'm presented with it so much without even realizing it too. But when you talk about white flight, that really resonates with me as a person of color. 
as a female leader, I feel like I've been very fortunate in my life to be really empowered in a lot of the workplaces. But when I think back about where I've been mistreated historically, I can I resonate more so with the idea of white flight. Mm -hmm. But yeah, they're, they're very similar. I think with gender flight, it's so subtle that we might think like, no, we've come a long way. Like we live in Canada and like, do you feel like we're equal? And I think on a day-to-day -day basis, you're not faced with like huge feelings of inequity, at least like myself and yourself when we're talking about this, we're not feeling like this on a day-to-day -day basis, this weighing heavily on us. But I do believe it's still, not even I believe, it's still prevalent in society. I feel like Amy and I were talking off air about Trudeau yes. and when he was elected, he made sure his cabinet was 50-50 men and women. Well, actually, That's, he just yeah. did a reshuffle this summer yeah. when I was there because it was the same time I was in Ottawa when they swore more people into the cabinet. Mm -hmm. And in that cabinet, Alex, yeah. you were mentioning to me that his goal was to... Yeah, it was to have like 50% women, 50% men. And I know that was very mixed reviews from the public. Some people were like, yeah, that is awesome. That is what we need. And then the next set of people were like, no, like what if there are more qualified people and you're just going to like accept women just on the base of their gender? And I was like, you know what? I think we need to have some of these systems in place to ensure that we aren't having that gender bias, like the Boston Orchestra, when mm -hmm. they're like, you know what, we don't have any women musicians, let's host blind auditions. Yeah. And then they found like, okay, we were having unconscious bias with this. In a way, I feel like Trudeau was kind of doing the same thing as the Boston Orchestra having that like blind audition where it's like, you know what, I have to have 50% women. And so I'm looking at women candidates because I know I have some unconscious bias and I'm going to make sure that I'm taking steps to challenge myself in that. In that movement too, though, I think it's also such a powerful move. I, I can understand both arguments, but I think Trudeau made the right decision in terms of being able to to start it, right? To be like, okay, let's start it. Because that's the thing. The argument of, oh, well, is there enough qualified women for this role? Well, there can yes. be once we see representation, even if there wasn't, let's start with being sure there's equity here. And then that way, more female politicians can come in, more representation mm -hmm. can be had within that space if we can see that as a visual instead of a barrier, right? So it you has to start like, with something. Such a good point there because like when we're looking from like the pool of candidates to pull from, when you start looking at the history of it, like was that accessible for women to go into politics in the first right. place, right? So I think maybe not forever do we need to have it that law where it's 50-50. But until we start doing this naturally, maybe we need to have things like, like you know, we, we hear words like affirmative action as well. And we have many strides to come as soon as you bring in people of color as well into right. this argument. Like, what, like how many premier or presidents, oh my God, prime ministers, <laughs> um, have we had that are people of color? Yeah. None. Yeah. I thought that was a good example. I thought maybe it would like raise some hackles because I know not everybody out there be loving Trudeau. At least the uh, the decals on the trucks around here let me know. <laughs> they tell me otherwise. Yeah. So I was like, oh, do I bring this up? And then I was like, the people that have those truck decals are also not listening to our podcast. So this, this is such a heavy topic, Alex. And I appreciate you um, helping me better understand too by connecting it to my summer favorite movie of Barbie. And what 
a good job they did at showing what Mattel looked like to be a catered to women company, but yet it was ran by all white men at the top. And so like they did a really good job at challenging our societal view on what roles we have for males and females. And I thought that was the first movie of its time to really, you know, punch through the ceiling and make a statement. So thank you for making that connection for me because yeah, this was like a hard topic to like digest a bit for me. Yeah. And I like thinking about Barbie, I felt like that was like a very like slapstick funny way to look at like kind of the inequity, the patriarchy, because it is heavy. And when you do sit down and you are like, inundated with all of this information it gets pretty heavy but like put it to a great soundtrack and some hilarious scenes it's like a much more palatable way to like you know feel like kind of empowered and rah-rah feminism and instead of feeling like down in the dumps because you can't audition for the boston symphony in 1952 so we're going to computer tech world industry in modern or get a business loan on time yeah or go into the trades at your high school Exactly. We could, the list could go on and on forever. It could go on and on forever, but it, it ends here. So um, (laughs) look into gender flight or don't, because when you do, it's really hard actually to come up with information about it. I don't know that it's really an accepted term yet, but talk to your friends about it. We, Emmy and I were talking about, we're like, what can we do now presented with this information? And I think two things, one, talk about it Two, check your own bias if you can. Yeah. Jar of questions. I love this question because we have such busy lives. So our question is, you get to outsource one life responsibility and someone else gets to do this responsibility for the rest of your life. What are you picking? This is like very hard because there's definitely some things that would make life easier, but I have settled on just one. And that's what the question is. (laughs) Only one. I know. Well, And this is the funny part because I actually enjoy this act, but from Monday to Thursday, I would like someone to meal prep all my meals. And then on the weekends, I would just have the freedom to cook as I please. But even so, maybe just the entirety of my life, because quite honestly, I do enjoy cooking and I like the act of doing it, but I guess like that's the one thing because it happens three times a day that quite honestly, it would probably be the easiest thing to outsource and the most efficient thing to outsource. What about you, Alex? I, you know, I hate cooking. (laughs) Yeah. And like, so normally that's my default answer. I would love if someone cooked for me, but back in teaching and in a new grade with a new curriculum, I was just thinking, I was like, hey, what takes up the most amount of my time? And I wish I just had like a personal assistant. (laughs) I wish I had someone in the classroom that like, I like multiple times a day, my phone rings with like, send so-and-so down to the office, come pick up their lunch, da-da-da. So I want someone on that. I want someone to like, you know, at the end of the day, you just need to get ready for tomorrow. You need to just tidy up, put the new schedule for tomorrow. I want them to do that. All of my photocopying, like, I just feel like I have so, I'm just so bogged down with prepping right now. And so if they could even just like, you know, we're learning about clocks, they put together the presentation on clocks. And then Mm. all of my assignments are printed out. If that was just done for me oh my gosh because like I just feel so overwhelmed with my workload right now we have just so much to do proofing my report card comments we had to proof each other so I'm proving my own I'm proving everyone else's you know 
I would just love if I just had a personal assistant in my room that was just doing all of that for me because then I could just teach. But I feel like I'm doing so much like admin work and paperwork. I'm like just fantasizing about that right now. I would love to outsource that. <laughs> I definitely thought you were going to say food prep as well. Because- Honestly, with food subscription boxes, it makes my life like it used to be this huge anxiety where I'd be like, oh, I have to go grocery shopping and what am I cooking? Blah, blah, blah. Now it just shows up at my door and I just cook it and it's fine. Okay. That's easy. But even then, like you still have to cook it. So yeah. But it takes away, like it takes away two of my biggest things, which is like, going out and getting the ingredients and also figuring out what to eat. And then it tastes good too. It has all of the spices. I don't have food waste. If yeah. I'm not in the mood for it, suck it. You paid a billion dollars to have this meal, so you can <laughs> eat it. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm trying to wean myself off the food subscription, quite honestly, for no reason other than being like, Amy, maybe you should start making your own food. Like that's literally- Why? If you have the yeah. money. I've went so far as like, I start buying like the the pre-made breakfasts. Oh, like, really? Like, yeah, because I feel like my whole life is bogged down by work right now. So maybe I had to have more time to enjoy cooking if someone answered my phone and made a PowerPoint every once in a while. Yeah, I, I just picture, I picture- like someone just following you doing all these things that you just mentioned and for some I picture reason it like you know when you watch a movie and it's like they're they work at vogue and they have the clipboard oh, you know and they're yeah. like coffee and i'm and i'm just like <laughs> throwing my jacket at them and they have to hang it up like devil wears prada <laughs> kind of thing yeah. yes it's basically Anne Hathaway just behind you the whole time. (laughs) Yeah, that is my dream. (laughs) Oh, that would actually be really nice. I kind of love doing those things though. Like I- What if someone did all of the shit and then you could do the fun parts of that shit? I don't know. Maybe because the role I'm in right now, like all that part is like the fun shit. I don't know. I'm really, I get like I'm not in the classroom as regular right now. So I do a lot of administration work and like, which is a lot of answering emails, but they're like case by case emails Mm -hmm. kind of problematic. And I am the problem solver and I'm really enjoying that part of it. And like, if I, if I worked four days a week and then on Fridays, I got to do like a full day of just like admin stuff, then I would be also happy, but I don't have any time to do any of that. Right. Maybe if I had time to do it, then I wouldn't need to outsource it and someone could cook my meals for me. Yeah. I am curious to hear what the listeners say. Yes. And I'm curious if anyone will apply for our jobs. (laughs) Personal chef and personal assistant. (laughs) Totally. Oh my gosh. I would love a personal chef. That would be unreal. Even the thought of it. And they would be cute though too, right? (laughs) (laughs) You know what? As long as you're making me tasty meals, I am here for it. So that would be unreal. Well, we'll turn it to you. What is one thing you would want to get outsourced from your life someone else could do? This podcast is edited by myself, Avery Severs, and music is mixed by Moons Over Mars. 